We are currently in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John, and we will conclude this morning, John chapter 9. The theme, spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. That's the theme of John chapter 9. Just as the physically blind are unable to make a distinction between light and dark, the mountains, the skies, the land, or the sea, so too the spiritually blind have absolutely no capacity to distinguish between the absolute holiness of God and the moral, complete, total depravity of sinful humanity. In our natural condition, we are not able to see God as who He is. He must intervene. And blindness throughout the Bible is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. God declares that His own people Israel, in Isaiah, were as clueless as the ignorant to which they were sent by God. In Isaiah 42, verse 18, Hear you, deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Blindness is used figuratively to signify fallen sinful man's inability to understand divine truth. Isaiah 43.8, Ryan read from it this morning. The Lord says through Isaiah, Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Isaiah also describes Israel's corrupt spiritual leaders in Isaiah 56.10 where he says his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, and loving to slumber. In referring to the Pharisees, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. You see, unless the blind sinner is sought out And granted sight by the Savior, he or she is helpless. No hope unless God comes to the sinner. Jesus took the initiative in in John 9 here, seeking out the blind beggar. His hands touched the beggar. He spit on the ground. He made mud. He anointed this man's eyes with mud and he ordered him, he commanded him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he received his sight. Miracle. The authoritative commands of Christ, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And physical sight was gifted to the man, born blind. Congenital blindness. So his blindness from birth was for the purpose that God would be glorified. If you recall, while he was there, Jesus looked at the, the man. His disciples said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned to cause this blindness, but that, verse 3, chapter 9, the works of God should be revealed in him. 
I mean, this man was a miracle in the making for what? The glory of God alone. The sole purpose, the glory of God, and to save this man's soul. The priority was not to save the man's soul. The priority was the glory of God, the means of which was saving this man's soul. Illustrated by physical sight. Jesus draws on this miracle as an allegory of being in the dark spiritually, lost, deceived, compared to those who are given sight, keyword given, granted by grace, sight to see. And then he goes on to explain the nature of spiritual sight as well as the nature of spiritual blindness, which we will see in verses 39 to 41. So I invite you now to open John 9 as I will read verses 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. Father, we ask this morning, according to your grace, that you would enable us, your church, to see the depth of your teaching here in the scriptures. I pray that your church would be built up and edified to see your sovereign grace through these words of scripture. And I pray for anyone here this morning who is yet dead in their sins who do not know you, who perhaps are deceived to think they know you. In reality, they do not. I pray that they would be born again by your grace as your spirit invades their life today. We pray these things always for your glory, your purpose, and may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's the summation of the narrative. In this account here in John 9, Jesus approached a beggar. A blind beggar. Congenital blindness. He was born in this condition. And in verses 1 through 7, we see the depiction there. Jesus approaches the man. He heals the man. And then the man who's gifted with his sight goes back to his neighbors. And they are astonished. They are stunned. Saying, is that him? No, it can't be him. Well, it looks like him. can't be. It's him. And he says, yes, it is me unrecognizable, such as the case with those who are totally transformed, born again. You become unrecognizable almost to those that you know most closely because your life is so radically transformed. See, this man was healed. He was given sight to see. And not only were his eyes healed, his mind was healed to be able to process all of the images for his brain to be able to register things he was seeing for the very first time. Imagine that. Walking back home, he groped his way home every day from begging. He would have walked something like this, shuffling his feet, his hands out, feeling his way back home, unless he had someone there to guide him. He came bouncing into town. Unrecognizable. He was so radically transformed. And then this man who was found and healed by Jesus is taken to the Pharisees, 
and is interrogated by these obstinate unbelievers. Yes, religious they were in their unbelief. Very religious, unbelievers, lost, doomed for hell. And there we see the determined unbelief of human depravity. And then after further interrogation, which we'll see this morning, the man is sought out and found by Jesus again. Okay, The man doesn't seek Jesus. Jesus seeks after the man, finds the man. He finds those that are his. And he reveals himself to this man. He gives him greater revelation of himself as the Messiah, the very Son of God. And then after further interrogation, Jesus, after finding this man, addresses the Pharisees and confirms them in their depravity. He establishes them in their unbelief, referred to as spiritual blindness. This is a picture of God turning the sinner over to themselves. A terrifying place to be, to be left alone. And that's what we see in verses 31 to 41, 39 to 41. And the title of this morning's message is, is True Vision and True Blindness. Those with true vision are those who are recipients of sovereign grace, gifted by God with the ability to see spiritually, the ability to understand and know God personally, relationally. That's what it is to be born again. Those covered in blindness are those that are confirmed in their unbelief. All unbelievers are condemned, as we'll read in a moment. They're condemned because they unbelieve, because they're unbelievers, and they are left blind because God leaves them in that condition. They refuse to recognize the true light of the world, Jesus Christ, as being the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way, and the only means to heaven. And unless one is regenerate, born again, he remains blind and dead in his sins. And regeneration is a term that emphasizes spiritual rebirth, a spiritual recreation. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. God must intervene. God must come to us and transform the nature that we're born with. That is a nature that is a sinful nature, a corrupt nature, which separates us completely from a holy God. That's what it is to be born again. Fallen human beings have no capacity in and of themselves whatsoever to transform that nature. That's why Jesus said to a religious leader, Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Lost, unregenerate sinners come in two basic forms. You have those that are open and bold in their evil doing. They could care less who knows and they don't care who sees. And that's a result of an excessive love for self and an excessive love for uncontrollable lusts and for self-indulgent pleasures. And the root is simply rebellious, sinful pride. And that's described in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32, many of which God says he gave over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Then he gives a list 
of how that sin manifests itself outwardly. In verse 32, he says, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do they do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, opposite of the obvious, unashamed sinner is the secretive sinner. And oftentimes, these secretive sinners are clothed in garments of religious activity. They spend a great deal of time attempting to veil their sin under the banner of religion. The root of which is generally a form of self-righteous pride. And under this category, we find about four groups of people. They're all doubly deceived because they all think they're okay with God because they don't see their corrupt sinful nature to begin with, and because they're shrouded in the cloak of religiosity or morality, they really think they're okay with God. Therefore, they're doubly deceived. You have the ethically self-righteous, you know, these people who adhere to a certain moral code of conduct. They don't smoke, they, they don't drink, they don't chew, and they don't go with what? Girls that do. So they think that they are okay with God. They have this standard and they bask in their own self-confident, moral, righteous piety. They think they're okay with God. They're deceived. Another group is the religiously involved. Followers of Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Joseph Smith of Mormonism, Charles Taz Russell or Joseph Rutherford of the Jehovah's Witnesses worshipers of the Virgin Mary, all of them will stand condemned in their religious deception. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The next group is the unconverted church member. Their name is on the church roll. They're active, but their name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Heavily involved. They want you to know what they do and who they are. Their names are plastered on things that they've purchased. Their name is plastered on some bench or some pew. They're unconverted, but very active. There's another group. This group knows the work of Christ, agrees with the work of Christ. They agree with the facts of the gospel but they're not active enough to hide behind some religious facade so they're quick to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe. With their mouth, they say, yes, I'm saved. But their life in no way bears fruit of someone being born again. That's as far as their empty confession takes them. They continue to put off and put off and put off the command to repent and believe. And they'll stand there in the end, having procrastinated their entire life, condemned in their sin. All of these groups remain in darkness, as Ephesians 4.18 declares, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their what? Heart. Blindness. They don't see because they can't see, although they think they see. 
compared to those who have been given, graced with the ability to see the light. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, which started this tirade against him, I am the light of the world. The Feast of Tabernacles. If you recall, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, John chapter 10 is all about a 7, 8, or 9 day period of time. The ability to know, to serve, to love, to honor Christ is a graced gift through his gospel for which no person can boast. There is no boasting if one is truly saved. There's nothing to boast about. Christ came to the sinner and delivered the sinner from the grip of hell and death. So that truth is veiled to those that are perishing and it is graced and revealed to those being saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel, Paul says, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's God's work. Just as God came to this blind man. So the only people who see light are those who know Jesus Christ personally. The world is divided into two camps. There's only two camps in this world. The spiritually blind who dwell in darkness and those who've been given, graced with the sight to see. That's it. There is no partial sight that saves. There is no half sight that justifies the sinner. One is either completely in or he's completely out. Saved by grace or judged according to the law. So you either have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as 2 Corinthians declares, or your understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in you, because of the blindness of your heart, according to Ephesians 4. It's one or the other. And here in John 9, spiritual sight is illustrated through the beggar, whereas spiritual blindness is illustrated by the most religious people of the day, the Pharisees. The blind beggar was given sight to see. The Pharisees were made blind. And then the conclusion of this account is that those who acknowledge their blindness, those who acknowledge the fact that they cannot see, are graced to see. And those who claim that they see are made twice as blind. Terrifying. And in this case, it's a contrast between one man and the outward, outwardly religious Pharisees. So let's look at what precedes these piercing words of grace and doom revealed in verses 39 to 41. And here now we see true vision, true blindness counteracted in verses 26 to 34. True vision, true blindness, counteracted, beginning in verse 26. See, here now we see a man transformed by the miracle of Christ who's confronted by the determined unbelief, here it is, against Christ. 
Their problem is with Jesus, not the blind man. Verse 26. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You see, this is the third time that these Pharisees asked the same question. What did he do and how did he do it? They asked it in verse 15. They asked it again in verse 19. And here again in verse 26. The ensuing argument between the blind man and the Pharisees was a duel between the obvious fact of the healing and their legal subjectivism. Well, he did this work on the Sabbath. And we don't do such things on the Sabbath. You can't make mud on the Sabbath. You can't spit on the Sabbath according to their man-made law. You couldn't spit in the mud or in the dirt because it made mud. But you could spit on a rock. So to spit in the dirt, you were making mud that was considered work, violating their man-made law. So if you're going to spit, spit on a rock. Ridiculous. Outrageous. So although the healing was undeniable, for which they already admitted here, they kept asking, how did he do it? They admit to the reality of this man having gained sight. But they didn't want to be bothered with the facts. And such is the case with willful unbelief. I believe what I believe. I've grown up with what I've grown up with. This is what I adhere to. Don't bother me with the facts. I don't want to know the facts. I'm comfortable in what I've learned through tradition. They don't want, you know how many people I've taken to the word? They have some skewed, twisted view of God, Christ, the word. And when you take them to the word and you show them clearly in love, with mercy and grace, they'll say this. Yes, I see. Next word. But. But. This is what I experienced. I don't care what you experienced. If the experience doesn't line up with the objective truth of God, you dismiss the subjective experience. Amen? So they interrogate him, going over the same ground again. So he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. So he's losing his patience with these dudes. Notice the biting sarcasm. This is so cool. Most people were absolutely terrified and intimidated by these religious leaders. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? Love it. So the form of his question expects a negative answer. So just what are you truly after here? Religious elite, scholars, William Hendrickson, great Bible commentator, comments on this, and he says this, quote, These last words constitute a skillfully expressed question which anticipates a negative answer, to be sure, but leaves the door slightly ajar for a positive one. As if one were saying, This is, of course, impossible, but yet one can never tell what you Pharisees might do. If this is not scorching satire... It is at least the next thing to it, end quote. This man was in no way fearful or timid of these Pharisees. Now, do you recall the reaction of his parents? The Pharisees called the parents to them. They said, is this your son? This is our son. How was he made well? Uh, he's of age, ask him. Verses 21 and 22. They 
feared man. Because to profess Christ was to be excommunicated, was to be unsynagogued, literally cast out of the fellowship of Israel. To reject Christ in shame, to reject Him in fear, to reject Him because you have a love for the world, or to delay, keep hearing, keep hearing, keep hearing, push away, push away, push away, you become harder, 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 more callous, more darkened, is to stand in judgment. I know him, I know him. He'll say, I never knew you. For many will cry out on that day, Jesus said. Many will cry out and say, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. He'll say, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. I never knew you. Regardless of how loudly you cry out that you knew me, I don't know you. Matthew chapter 7. But in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this, verse 32. Whoever confesses me, before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This man is courageous. This courage was birthed by Christ initiating this relationship. You don't have enough courage to stand in your own for the glory of Christ. I don't have enough courage to stand and face a bunch of hostile unbelievers and proclaim that there's only one way, as I've been in many places with all unbelievers. That courage has to come outside of me. He gives it to me. So this man's courage to proclaim Christ is now attacked by these religious hypocrites with verbal assault. Verse 28, Then they reviled him. And said, you are his disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. He's referring to Jesus. As for this fellow, we know not where he comes from. So in response to this man's sarcasm towards them and his confidence in Christ, they resort to verbal attack. The the word revile here means to to insult, to, to reproach, with a sense to wrangle or quarrel. To angrily oppose is what revile means. And you know, there's typically three levels of conflict. You have level number one, which is an intellectual level. It's, it's mind to mind, like in a debate. And if one begins to lose an argument and he deteriorates to the emotional level and, and gives himself to his rising hostility, he may resort to level two, which is ad hominem. Verbal abuse, name-calling. You know when someone's lost an argument and they tell you that your mom's ugly. (laughs) And if that doesn't work, he may opt to level three, physical assault. And we see all three in this passage. They resort to verbal abuse because although they knew the history and the law of Moses... They boasted in it, even. They didn't know Jesus, the one in whom Moses wrote and spoke about. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew, or Luke rather, 24, 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning who? Concerning me. 
So the man continues with plain language, common sense, and the Pharisee's contempt for Christ actually now kindles this man's confidence in Christ. He's faced with opposition. And because he's truly of the faith, graced by Christ who approached him, initiated this relationship, opened his eyes, he's now growing confident. And opposition against Christ is kindling this confidence. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of a God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one born blind. Never in the Old Testament do you see of anyone being healed. Congenital blindness. She says, look, this is a magnificent, distinct miracle, and how amazing it is that you scholars don't recognize the one who's doing it. You don't know his origin. Funny. Know-it-alls. So these supposed scholars used their education in theology, quote-unquote, as a tactic of intimidation rather than for the purpose of true knowledge, which births true what? Wisdom, application of the knowledge. R.C. Sproul was interviewing Ben Stein. He just came out with this movie, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, documentary on uh, higher levels of education, expelling, kicking out those who want to teach intelligent design. And he said this, quote, Many people go into academic life because they're frightened people. They want a kind of sanctuary. When they're attacked or questioned even, they react very, very strongly. They are scared people. Really scared of intelligent design. End quote. And that's the context of the interview. It's those that are given over to the theory of evolution out of fear of an intelligent designer who has a moral standard, they intimidate. You let some young Christian walk into the university system here who is not equipped with the truth of Scripture in them, and they will suffer greatly from the learned ones. And the Jews, these Jews, they did nothing less than that. They fearfully refused to see the facts. This healing should have been ample evidence that Jesus is from God, that the Father hears him, because those that are at enmity against God and those under divine condemnation go unheard of God. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs 28.9 One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 1.15 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Hypocritical worship. Actor. That's what a hypocrite is. Acting religious when others are around. Prayers, unheard. Is the arm of the Lord shortened that it cannot save? Is his ear heavy that it cannot hear? No. Your iniquities have caused God to turn his face from you so that he wills not to hear. As Isaiah also says. Healing a blind man like this was unheard of before this. And it was prophesied as a work and a sign of Messiah. They should have recognized this, these scholars. Isaiah 35, 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. They refused to acknowledge him. Therefore, they refused to worship him. The only one that can save them. They were blind to the miracles being performed before them. These were sign miracles, pointed to something greater than themselves, pointing to the one who performed them, the Messiah, the fulfillment of it all. So this newly seeing and insightful beggar of old continues with heavenly wisdom. Notice now his growing trust in the work of Christ. This growing trust in the work of Christ causes hostility and physical conflict against those opponents of Christ, from those opponents of Christ. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing, the man says. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he came to Jesus and most assuredly, no one can do the signs that you do unless God were with him. Amen? They recognized it. They went, they inquired. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And then they cast him out. Here now we witness the third level of conflict. They literally lay hands on him and they cast him out of the synagogue. The very thing that his parents feared. They had no answer. They had no logical argument. So they resort to a noisy, thunderous retort in an attempt to intimidate the man from following Christ and challenging them. So if you can't beat them logically, just sound off with a lot of noise and a lot of force, right? That's what they're doing. So they cast him out. They throw him out. Get him out of here. And this is no light manner. This is no light matter whatsoever. To be kicked out of the synagogue is to be excommunicated, to be viewed as a total outcast, being cut off from the family, religious activity, and all social status and support financially. Cut off. All for what? Faith in Jesus Christ. True faith in Jesus Christ. This was not some guy who just spouted off words out of his mouth. This is a transformed man. In verse 22 of John 9, it says, The Jews agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated. Literally, to be unsynagogued. Standing for Christ cost him everything. They refused to hear. 
So they just get rid of him. You know, you may stand alone against family, against friends, proclaiming Jesus Christ. Proclaim Christ, your family may want to disown you. All the while, this is what they'll do. They'll plug their ears. Plug their ears to the truth that you come proclaiming. When Stephen proclaimed Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 7, proclaiming him as Messiah is the only way, as Israel's Messiah, that they rejected him, that they crucified him, they responded. Verse 57, Acts 7, they cried out with a loud voice. And look what they did next. They stopped their ears. And they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. That's hatred, not for Stephen. That's a hatred for Christ. If they persecuted me, he said, will they not persecute you? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. They stopped their ears. They couldn't believe this former blind beggar would possibly accuse them. How dare you? You're speaking to us like that? You're out of here. Okay, we'll show you, right? But look what happens next. The great shepherd. The great shepherd who knows his sheep. He says, I know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And my sheep, when they hear my voice, as I initiate it, they follow me. But he has to go after them first. Now notice... The great shepherd hears about this and he seeks out his expelled little lamb. Notice now the true worshiper, unaffected, unafraid of the bullying tactics of these Pharisees, is cast out. He makes a stand. Now we move to verses 31 to 40, 35 to 41. True vision, true blindness revealed. We see the worshipers of Christ contrasted with the rejectors of Christ. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when, they, when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Notice, the man did not have to find Jesus. Jesus found him. But Jesus had one more procedure to perform on this man's spiritual eyesight. Jesus, taking the initiative again, he finds the man. He already brought him to decisive and knowledgeable faith. Jesus then asks the crucial, the crucial question, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? Now remember, the blind man has not seen Jesus up to this point. He was commanded to go wash. He went and washed. He went home. He's been interrogated. He's cast out. Now Jesus comes to him again. This is the first time he's laid his new eyes on the Savior. Who is he, Lord? Jesus answered, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. That is heavy. Heavy, 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 heavy. Trippy. So this scene is made so powerful by its simplicity here. Jesus simply says, look at he's like this. Can you imagine? You're looking at him. It's me. That's amazing. With his new eyes and the ability for his mind to process everything that he's seeing, all these images, he's looking at the face of the Savior who will go to the cross on his behalf. As ordained, preordained before the foundation of the earth. 
And Jesus sought this man out. See, sight to see must begin with God initiating the relationship who grants the sight to see in the first place. It's all of God. Anyone who's graced with new vision is also given further revelation of the one who gave them the vision to see. Therefore, they will recognize Jesus. So by his divine miracle within... There's only one response. You've been given sight to see. He comes to you. He gives you further revelation of himself because he's granted you the ability to see, the ability to understand and grasp who he is and what he's done. There's one response. Verse 38. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's it. True worship. It means this man fell prostrate, worshiping the one who gave him sight to see. Beautiful. The man's response is instantaneous. And he makes this verbal confession. He falls prostrate before the Lord. And here we see the steps of every sinner who's saved by grace. We're all blind at first. No one's born with sight. Everyone's born totally depraved. We're lost sinners. We don't even realize our lost condition outside of the grace of God shining a light in the darkness of our soul. And then by this gracious work of God, we're drawn to Christ. He opens our eyes. He reveals more of himself to us. We begin to understand who he is, what he has done, the price of the cost, the cross that he was lifted up between heaven and and earth rejected by man, rejected by the Father, to bear the sins, to bear the wrath of the Father on behalf of those who will truly believe, granted the sight to see. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that those who have true faith in Jesus Christ won't have to cry out like that for eternity. That's grace. So in other words, when he says, do you believe? He's saying, do you really entirely for the life and death? All of life believe on the Son of God. Like a true disciple. A true follower. In distinction from these unbelieving religious hypocrites. Do you truly believe? And he's laying there, bowed down. And as he's bound down in genuine worship, Jesus now draws a distinction. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Now at first glance, verse 39 appears to stand in contradiction with John 3.17. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. But verse 17 is followed by verses 18 to 21. Amen? People stop reading oftentimes. They stop after John 3.16 usually. And verses 18 to 21 contrast darkness and light and its implied threat of judgment. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. 
But he who does not believe is condemned already. In other words, brothers and sisters, friends, family. Everyone in this world who does not believe and is not saved by grace, not born again, they're condemned. They stand condemned. That's why we take out the gospel. We proclaim, we just herald it. It's up to God who's he going to save. We herald that truth. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light. Because what? Their deeds are evil. What does light do? It exposes evil. It exposes darkness. Turn on the light, darkness, it flees, it goes away. For everyone practicing evil, they hate the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may, that they have been done in God. So all unbelievers stand condemned in their depraved, helpless condition. Now, although Jesus came to save and not condemn, we know that only some will be saved. Amen. So if only some will be saved, then the saving of some involves the condemning of others. Just, that's just a logical conclusion to the truth of Scripture. So here we see the paradox of Christ's revelation. As he dispenses grace to some, as his grace goes out to, to some, others give great offense to that grace. You've probably experienced it in your own life. You've been graced by the love of Christ. And others who stand already condemned in their unbelief begin to hate what they see because it's the light of Christ in you. It is now the light of Christ through you. That becomes very convicting. And they hate who you represent. The light of the world. Jesus Christ. Such was the case here. Commentator Rudolf Boltman writes, quote, In order to be grace, it must uncover sin. He who resists this grace binds himself in his sin. And so, through the revelation, sin for the first time becomes definitive, end quote. In other words, those who think they see and resist the work of Christ, the abounding, abundant grace of God through Christ, are confirmed in their blindness. Here then, we understand the purpose clause of verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world in order that, that's the purpose clause, in order that the blind will see and those who see, in other words, those who think they see, will become blind. Now the rejectors of Christ speak out. Verse 40. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words. And they said to him, Oh, are we blind also? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, because you think you see, your sin remains. The Pharisees haughtily ask, Oh, are we blind? And the Lord's reply was a paradox. If you were blind, you'd be better off. Because if you were blind, you'd be given sight. But since you claim to see... You are therefore guilty. 
Notice verse 41. If you were blind, you'd, be, you'd have no sin. The blind here, this context, the blind refers to those who are in spiritual darkness. They're lost. They stand in condemnation. When that truth is revealed, they agree with it and they admit to it. And they're granted sight to see. Their eyes are opened. Jesus came to open their eyes. He came to give them the light of revelation that enables sight to the Savior. You know, the first recorded teaching words of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, note again, the first recorded teaching words of Christ are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, which kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, he said, when all his fame went out throughout the land in chapter 4, and people were coming from all regions, being healed, signs, miracles, and wonders, he retreated. He went up on a mountain, he sat down, and he said to his disciples, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. It's a word that means to reach out as a shameful beggar, to know that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing whatsoever to offer a holy, righteous, pure God. Zero. Zip. That's poor in spirit, and those people are blessed. God has revealed to them the darkness of their soul, and they cry out in mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. These are the ones who become convinced of their spiritual poverty. They've been made conscious of their misery, and they understand their need. They have a need for a Savior. Their pride's been broken. You remember when you were converted? When God caused you to be born again? You were born again, brought to the end of yourself. You saw Christ. You saw God as who he really is for the first time. What else did you do but fall out for and cry out for his mercy and thanks for what he's done? There's no other response than that. Such a sinner begins to cry out as the tax collector did in Luke chapter 18. You remember two men went into the temple. One was a Pharisee and he stands and he prays within himself. Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men. I fast, I pray, I give a tenth of all that I have, and I certainly thank you I'm not like this tax collector over here. And then the, pan, the camera pans over to the other side of the temple on the tax collector, his head bowed, he cries out, beating his chest, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went away that day justified. And the self-righteous Pharisee stood condemned in the position of his heart, left himself, confirmed in his darkened condition. Jesus continues, but now you say, we see, therefore, your sin remains. Those who see in this text context are those who think they see, just like the Pharisees, they make all kinds of, of, of confident statements, but they're profoundly wrong. And they inevitably reject the true light when it comes, all the while claiming to have 20-20 spiritual sight. 
because of their traditions, because of their man-made laws, because they've been sitting in the same pew every week, all their life. They know the gospel. They can reiterate the gospel, but they don't know the Savior of the gospel. They completely reject the truth. The truth of their depraved condition. So, therefore, their sin what? It remains. Their sin remains. Never to be removed, never to be paid for, never to be cleansed, but they're confirmed. Here it is. They are confirmed in their darkened natural condition. That's what that means. You will be made blind. This is a terrifying statement. If you sit here unconverted to Jesus Christ today, I don't care how much truth you know, you ought to be terrified. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will cause you to be terrified and that you will cry out for his mercy, that he'll save you. See, the question is not, do you agree with the claims of Christ? The question is, are you converted to Christ? Have you truly been born again? That's the question. Jesus Christ became incarnate. He lowered himself to become a man for the purpose of bringing light to the hidden things of darkness. Your sin, my sin. He came to expose the hearts of men. And those made conscious of their blindness might receive sight. But those who think they have spiritual sight in their own estimation, they know all these claims, all these truths, they will be made blind. They will be left to themselves. So these law and and religiously crazed Pharisees had no desire for true revelation whatsoever. He was standing before them. So by denying Christ, they deny their blindness and therefore were left in their sin. They were left to themselves. They were left alone. It's a terrifying thing to be left alone in your sin. You do not want Jesus to leave you alone. You do not want him to leave you to your sin. On another occasion, Jesus, at another time, offended the the Pharisees as he did often. Okay, On another occasion, he offended them. And in Matthew 15, 12, his disciples came to him and he said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leans the blind, both will fall into the ditch. See, what he says here, let them alone, this is the judgment of abandonment. This is serious stuff. Jesus warns his disciples, pay no attention to these religious leaders, disassociate yourself completely from them. Those who place their confidence in them are going to be uprooted along with them. They weren't planted by my father. They're false converts. His life is not in them. They're deceived and deceivers. So the person who sits in church and hears the preaching of the word of God and the giving out of the gospel and the, is, 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 sit in the presence of the light and that light reveals the blindness of those who continually reject this truth, you see. See, the gospel has two effects. It softens and it saves and it hardens and condemns. It leaves people. 
in their natural condition is they reject and they reject and they reject and they reject. Put it off, put it off, put it off. I'll, I'm going to go get all my stuff in order. I'm going to go live my life, become successful. Then I'll pull Jesus into my little world. Wrong. Repent. Believe. Call out for his mercy. Jesus said in Matthew 6, as I conclude, If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Oh, how great is that darkness. The very light that one takes in week after week after week in a natural depraved state is actually confirming them in their lost, darkened condition. And the reason in the context of Matthew 6 is divided loyalty of their hearts. Jesus continues in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. That's the problem. People want to serve two masters. We'll put Jesus over here, but my real desire is fill in the blank. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The Pharisees, they love the praises of men. They love their self-made regulations, their self-righteous attempts of upholding the perfect law of God. You know the Ten Commandments? We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. You can't live according to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, perfect, glorious, beautiful law of God is placed there as a mirror to show you how messed up you are, how messed up I am, and we're incapable of upholding that law. There's only one response to that. You fall on your face and say, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. I can't do that. Exactly. I sent my son to do it. He upheld the law. He went to the cross. He suffered my wrath in your place. The hell you deserve, he took it upon himself. He became sin on the cross. For whoever will look upon him and surrender their lives to him, all of the righteousness that was on Christ, all that he is, he is perfectly righteous, he is God in the flesh, is placed upon you. You're clothed in robes of righteousness because he took all of your sin. If you're in Christ. If you're born again. He went to the cross to bear the shame. The sins of all those who believe. He took the wrath of the Father and he paid it for you. But to prove that he paid it for you, you must surrender and repent of your sin and fully and completely embrace Christ. Or you will pay for all eternity for your own sin. That's the great exchange. Now, there's many truths depicted in this chapter. First of all, we see the cost involved in standing for Christ, don't we? Even today... There are people who must choose between family and Christ. You must choose between tradition, traditional religion and Christ. And many today are going to have to decide whether they're going to surrender or they're going to choose their false beliefs about Christ or Christ. You must choose. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must count the cost. Unless you hate your father, your mother, your brothers, your sister, and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, if this man's family would have come to him and says, look, we'll disown you if you follow Christ. Jesus said, if you, if, if you aspire to, to honor them above me, you can't be my disciple. This man didn't care about that. 
He knew who opened his eyes. He knew who saved him. He worshipped him. He said, I believe. Another truth depicted here is divine reprobation. Man's hard, unbelieving heart being confirmed in its natural, depraved condition. This is God just simply turning man over to himself. Romans, just read Romans 1. Three times God turns him over. And of course, the thing that stands out most clearly, they all stand out clearly, but the thing that shines bright is the sovereign grace of God in salvation. You ought to praise God for his sovereignty and salvation because if you had anything to do with it, you can also lose it. John 9 reveals the absolute inability of man and the absolute necessity of Christ's intervention on behalf of man, on behalf of woman, in order for him or her to see and to believe. It's impossible without it. So if it weren't for God sovereignly seeking out the lost sinner, we would never be able to see Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ever. So, if you're a Christian... Hopefully everyone here is. If you're not, you've just heard the gospel. Repent. Believe. And embrace. The only way, the only truth, and the only life, Jesus Christ. Or you will pay for your own sin. If you're in Christ, rejoice. And be ever so thankful that the sight that you have has been graced as a gift to you. As Jesus came to this man, he came to you granted you sight to see. He gave more revelation of himself so that you could grow in confidence and trust in who he is and what he's done so that you can therefore proclaim his name and worship him through everyday life. You had no more to do with your spiritual sight than this man had to do with his physical sight. Do you understand that? Nothing. It's all him. The faith to believe is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad, brothers and sisters. You're a sinner saved by grace given sight to see, and may our lives, may our lives be a living portrait of the gratitude, the thanksgiving that we ought to have to Jesus Christ as we live for his glory and obedience because of what he's done. We live in response to what he's done. Amen? Because of the cross, in your place, he bore the penalty. You know what that is? Amazing what? Amazing grace. Amazing Grace. So let's stand and let's sing together Amazing Grace. Father, thank you for your grace that has sought us out, that has given us sight to see, that has granted us the further revelation of yourself as revealed through Scripture thank you that your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God, knowing that you bore the wrath, you bore the shame, you hung naked on the cross, beaten beyond recognition, spit on, mocked, ridiculed, as you were raised up, rejected from those on earth and rejected by your own Father so that we, your church, could be saved. We thank you. We praise you for that amazing, amazing gift of grace.
And may we live lives that reflect such a gift. I pray for your people here today, these dear people, that they be encouraged, they be strengthened, they would come to see you to a greater degree as revealed through Scripture and how great and awesome and mighty you are. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who came in, who's in here unredeemed, who does not know you. I pray that you'd lift the veil of unbelief and grant them the sight to see by grace. Cause them, we pray, to be born again. In Jesus' mighty name, together we all say, Amen.